Missed the show? No worries. On point and on the podcast. Canada slapped sanctions against a number of Russian targets over the persecution of Vladimir Putin's most vocal critics. But why did it take us so long to do what our allies did five months ago? Ford government lays out its second pandemic budget. And for a government that ran on austerity, the spending sprees continuing as we try to get out of this pandemic mess. And what turned a tragic house fire into a possible crime of arson? Let's get talking. Getting through to you. That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. The member from Calgary, Nose Hill, has blocked me on Twitter because she is obviously afraid of me providing her with information that she doesn't want to see. Now, what kind of elected official is that, Madam Speaker, who actively goes out to try to silence the members from other parties? How are we supposed to collaboratively get along in this place when the member from Calgary Knows Hill is blocking other MPs on Twitter. That is just, like, I, I just don't understand it. Sincere condolences to the member for Kingston and the Islands uh, for having had to go through the experience of having someone block him on Twitter. I, I can't imagine what that feels like, and I know the hearts of members in this House really go out to the member for Kingston and the Island. We're having a, a debate here on lockdowns, and he spent about half of his speech sharing from his heart what that was like. Oh, yeah, his government can barely get the vaccines, and this bozo liberal's whining about being blocked on Twitter. And uh, it's Budget Day, which is that sobering reminder that we're going to be paying for this pandemic for a good long time. And we'll go through the numbers in a few minutes because they truly are staggering. And you know it's bad when the opposition can barely find anything to complain about. So we know that the taxpayer is going to be a big loser here. And we also knew that COVID-19 would come with an enormous price tag. But let's talk, shall we, for a second about why I think people are souring on today's politicians or today's politics, you know, why so few people think there's little honor left in the honorable elected officials. That guy you heard off the top of the show, that was Liberal MP Mark Gerritsen. So he's the member elected for Kingston and the Islands. And he's a backbencher. And now we know why. And it's because he is a large man-child. He is completely unserious. Because during a debate... In question period on lockdown measures, his biggest beef that he went on and on and on about is that he got blocked on Twitter by a conservative MP. And I tried to tweet it at the member from Calgary Nose Hill. You want to know what happened, Madam Speaker? She has blocked me. The member from Cal- and so so here we have here we have the member from Calgary Nose Hill who has blocked on Twitter a member of this House. And when I raise this concern, we have other members from the Conservative Party 
chanting, hear, hear. Deficit. Are they even really interested? Go on, go on. Do you have more to say? Please. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, keep digging. Keep. Tim and James Bay. I'm trying to follow my honourable colleague's meanderings, and uh, is he is he actually weeping in the house that people are blocking him because of his incoherence at times? <laughs> I just I wasn't. Did he say blocking? I wasn't sure if I heard correctly because maybe it's a question of people not having people maybe have very wise judgment in that. Yeah. I think Charlie Angus is right on that one. But this guy has shown himself to be a completely unserious crybaby who has decided that he best serves the people of his riding by moaning about being blocked on social media. I mean, can you imagine even whining? I've been blocked. I I don't care. It doesn't even, it doesn't phase me for two seconds. I give zero blanks about that. And yet this guy took up valuable minutes in question period, whining about it, moaning about it. And if you follow the guy, you're going to see why Michelle Rebel Gardner blocked him. It's because he uses his platform to take very childish, cheap shots that are often below the belt and below how an elected official should actually behave. He is incredibly childish. But to answer his dire concern, how is he expected to get important information to the health critic? To you, Mr. Gerritsen, I'd say, um, write her an email or, I don't know, pick up the phone or maybe go knock at her office door. I don't know. Do anything. Or act like a grown man, not a clown in question period because he can't attend a, you know, a snarky partisan shot. I mean, he's not just an embarrassment to himself. It's an embarrassment to those who elected him into parliament and should give that a second thought the next time there's an election. He is everything wrong with politics today. His energy, because he's clearly got a lot for Twitter would be better spent worrying about, you know, getting vaccines to Canadians on uh, Canadians being crushed by this economic crisis. I don't know. He should be worried about anything other than Twitter. And polling by Maru Blue finds that nearly 6 in 10 Canadians, we're talking 57% of Canadians, now feel politically homeless. They feel failed. They feel disillusioned. And that's why. Because there are too many political children, like Liberal MP Mark Gersten, who show themselves to be totally unserious during a serious time. That clip goes on and on and on. I just picked out little chunks of it, and I was like, this this can't be a thing. This can't be a grown man who gets paid by the taxpayers to represent them, can it? Like, seriously? I mean, talk about embarrassment. He ought to be completely completely embarrassed for himself because I'm embarrassed for him. But there's a good example of why people just say not interested. Busy show today. Uh, We're going to go through the dollars and cents of the budget. I mean, it always takes a few days. My eyes just blur on days like this to dig into the details. So they'll start kind of coming out. But on first blush, um, zero austerity. Okay, so it doesn't exist. The focus is, uh, you know, getting through COVID, getting through a recovery that's going to take at least a decade. And so what stood out for me is that we're going to have a record-breaking $33.1 billion deficit. This is the largest ever deficit in the province. It is the very opposite of what a conservative government should deliver, and yet the taps are still going to be flowing because there's $51 billion uh, put aside for pandemic relief over the next four years. There is a lot of money for the um, hard-hit tourism sector. There is more small business grants, which is great news for businesses. 
money for long-term care, money for vaccines, money for baby bonuses. Um, so they've been bolstered. And, um, and then I thought this was interesting because you don't get civility a lot in, um, in politics, but Peter Bethlen Falvey, who is the finance minister, uh, clearly stated, you know, we are in a she session and he's going to strike a tax task force to help women, you know, get back in the workforce and be able to compete for the same opportunity as men. But he even gave Andrea Horvath, the opposition leader, some high praise. I like to point to, uh, among others, Andrea Horvath, uh, a leader of a party who holds our government to account. And I'm a big believer in democracy. And uh, that sort of, just like the media, the fifth estate, uh, an opposition. I'm out here every 90 days to tell the people of Ontario not only how, how the money, you know, what, where we spent the money, but how we spent the money. Transparency and accountability, I really believe that. And uh, that makes our system work. And I just want to acknowledge her as well as some of the other great uh, women who are leading this province. There you go. That actually doesn't surprise me. I mean, if you know Peter Bethlen Falvey, and I actually got to know him before he went into politics, he is uh, he is one of the most supremely decent people uh, and nicest guys you can meet. And so that does not surprise me that he would say something like that. But uh, he reached out a little bit of an olive branch, and uh, we're not hearing too many complaints. There, there are certain things that have been left out of this budget. Uh, the sick pay issue is still uh, non-existent, albeit there is a program at the federal level. So, um, you know, it is there. It's just not at the provincial level. On point, this is Global News Radio. It's taken the Trudeau government a long time to get tough with our adversaries, but this week it looks like the Trudeau government has flexed its little muscle now twice at our biggest geopolitical threats. So on Monday, we learned Magnitsky sanctions had been slapped against four Chinese officials on the grounds of human rights violations against Uyghur Muslims. And today we learned that Canada has slapped sanctions on nine Russian government officials for the poisoning and prosecution of Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. It's not exactly a small thing. Marcus Kolga is a senior fellow with McDonald Laurier Institute, journalist, also an expert in Russian, Eastern Europe, and Asian affairs. Good to have you, Marcus. Always a pleasure to be on, Alex. It was nice to see this headline. I mean, we are months late to this game. Our allies moved months earlier. So what is the timing of this now? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, most of these uh, individuals who are either uh, Russian government officials, um, people working within the presidential administration, um, most of them were uh, had sanctions applied to them by the European Union and, and the UK already back in October. Um, and then another round of sanctions were placed in uh, uh, in partnership with the US uh, back about three weeks ago on March 2nd. Um, Canada wasn't part of the first round. Canada wasn't part of the second round. Um, and we're, like you said, we're, I mean, we're, we're delayed, but at least we're, you know, uh, harmonizing these, uh, these sanctions with our, with our allies now. And, um, and it seems from the reaction, immediate reaction in Moscow, that, uh, that Vladimir Putin is not very happy. No, and that's uh, not a bad thing, but it can be a bad thing because, uh, you know, the ball is in his court as to what he would do as far as a reaction. Because, I mean, if there's yeah. one person that has really gotten under his skin, it's a guy named Alexei Navalny. I mean, he's a very, very formidable uh, critic of, of, um, of Putin. But, you know, he could look at a guy like Justin Trudeau and see the way that he cowers when it comes to China and just uh, flick us back. So what does this mean as far as kind of uh, reaction uh, Canadians should expect on a move like this? 
Well, two things. You're absolutely right. I mean, when we don't, I mean, we have this sanctioning legislation that was introduced. I mean, I was working on it for about a decade and we finally um, introduced it in 2017. It's the, the Sergei Magnitsky law. It'll, it allows us, it introduces the ability for the government to apply targeted sanctions on human rights abusers and corrupt foreign officials. So, so that's what we use. And the, the entire purpose of this legislation is to create a deterrent effect um, uh, and, and place consequences on, uh, for anyone who's thinking about abusing human rights. And, and when we don't use them, or if we start using them in this delayed fashion, that, that deterrent effect sort of dissipates. And, um, and you're right. I mean, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin may not be happy, but um, you know, we've given uh, these nine people on this list uh, three week, at least a three week head start to move any assets they, they might, might have had in Canada. Um, as for the reaction, um, you know, we know that Vladimir Putin doesn't like these sanctions uh, because it uh, exposes the people who enable him, the people who keep him in power to some pretty significant risks. And it was actually just last week that uh, my good friend, Bill Browder, who um, I'm sure yeah. a lot of your listeners have read his book, uh, Red Notice. We've worked together on the Global Magnitsky campaign. Um, Vladimir Putin, uh, over the weekend, it, it, it was exposed that he has put together a global kill list. Yes. And, he, and Browder um, was on that list. And Bill was on that list. And, yeah. uh, and so are a number of prominent uh, other critics. Um, there are Vladimir Shurkov, who is one of uh, Alexei Navalny's close colleagues who, who runs his anti-corruption foundation out of London, he's on that list, there's a, there's a number of them. And we only know of the, the member, the, the names that were on the UK list. We don't know who, if there were any Canadians on the list, if there were any uh, Americans or anyone else on the list. So, you know, if that's any signal, this is, if this is the way that Vladimir Putin is going to react through terror, um, the Canadian government, CSIS, the RCMP, we really need to start paying attention because that's, um, that's violent intimidation. And, uh, and we know that uh, Putin has acted not quite in, I mean, there's, we don't know of any assassinations that have happened in Canada, but he certainly tries to intimidate uh, Canadian critics, uh, including myself, into silence. So this is something that we need to keep a close eye on, and we need to proactively use these sanctions, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, or any other, you know, Iran, North Korea, any of these regimes, Venezuela, that engage in human rights abuse, and specifically intimidation of Canadians, we need to start using these, these sanctions. Um, because right now um, we're, we're really just sort of stumbling along and, uh, and they're, they're losing their effect. Yeah, and, and our allies aren't exactly, I mean, Canada has been kind of an outlier now for a while, just sitting on the sidelines, letting, you know, we're like the cheerleader, go, 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 everyone, go do the hard work. And then, you know, finally we've had to start <laughs> taking our own action. And, and maybe that will then draw our allies in to get tougher, uh, you know, more increasingly tougher with China and Russia. But what does this mean for Russia and China then? Are, they're not working together but they're certainly not uh they certainly wouldn't not work together i mean they both have the same interests and their interests are destroying the west well yeah i mean it's it's i mean i think up until uh, a, a year or two ago um russia was was certainly working independently of china um quite frankly i mean in a lot of places like africa and and other areas of the world they're competing with each other um, specifically in Africa. So the, yeah, they, I mean, they weren't collaborating too much, but I think that over the past year and a half, certainly during uh, this, uh, this crisis, the, the pandemic that we're in, uh, we're seeing some collaboration. We're seeing China learn from Russian disinformation tactics where they were you know, rather blunt about how they, um, they, they presented you know, pro-regime narratives. 
um, they're becoming a bit more refined. They're and and they're not as as sort of blunt force as they as they once were. Um, and you've seen a lot of blending of narratives. You know, there was the classic uh, narrative that the that Russian platforms introduced back in oh, about a year ago in March last year, where they claimed that COVID was actually developed in a U.S. biological lab, right. uh, a warfare lab. And the Chinese government picked up on this right away. The foreign foreign ministry they started amplifying it. So we're seeing that sort of collaboration uh, between Russia and China. It's not formal, but they clearly they have they both have an anti-Western um, goal and intent to undermine our governments, our societies, and such. So in that sense, they are working together, and it's something we're quite fr- quite frankly we're not uh, we're not very well prepared for. So you know, applying these sorts of sanctions, standing up together. Um, is an important thing and, and Canada really ne- needs to get on the program because as you mentioned, you know, we're right now, we're sort of an outlier. Um, yeah. our, our allies were probably looking at us and going, where are they? And I know that I saw a lot of this on, on, uh, on Twitter and I, and I had email messages from a number of European leaders who asked, we're, what's, what's going on in Canada? Why are they not joining us with these, these Russian sanctions? So it's, it's welcome that at least we're, we're, we're starting to catch up. Yeah, well, yeah, actions are a lot uh, more meaningful than uh, than words. On the list, though, I mean, when we're talking about who we're talking about, we're talking about um, uh, prosecutors, we're talking about uh, Putin's deputy chief of stash, National Guard guy. Um, but you say that there's one person on this miss- list that should not be um, missed and somehow didn't get on it. Who is that? Well, there, there are actually quite a few people who are missing from our list still at this point. One of the major ones is Yevgeny Prigozhin. So I think a lot of your listeners will remember from the 2016 U.S. elections, this uh, St. Petersburg troll farm that was constantly mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, this is a, the entity that was really responsible for a lot of the interference and disinformation that was being pumped into the election yeah. campaign back in 2016. And Yevgeny Prigozhin is the fella that owns and runs that entire operation. In fact, the FBI just placed him on the... Uh, on the most wanted list about three weeks ago with a, I think it was a $250,000 reward for Hmm. uh, any information leading to his capture. Um, So this guy, he's also runs a a group called mercenary group called Wagner, who does all sorts of nasty stuff in Africa. Um, This guy is on all of the other sort of EU, EU, UK and US uh, sanctions lists, but he's inexplicably missing from ours. And so we, we had a real opportunity to add him to our list uh, this time. and, And we haven't. And, and my, uh, my hope is that uh, we'll, we'll fix that uh, very soon. Well, stay tuned. It's been a busy week in your world for sure, but uh, I appreciate your insight into this. Anytime, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Marcus Kolga joining us here. So uh, the Prime Minister will come out on Friday and he'll get peppered with you know, a lot more questions on what's next. Stay with us, Alex Pearson on point. And this is Global News Radio. The Ontario government is projecting to spend $173 billion in 2021-22. When you consider that the government spent $148.8 billion in 2018-2019, it is clear that we have spared no expense to, to, to defeat COVID-19. Indeed, indeed. That is Peter Bethlen Falvey, the finance minister, delivering his first budget, but it is the second pandemic budget we've seen, and the numbers are very, very steep. The very opposite of austerity, which uh, this government I ran on. Big takeaway for sure are these enormous deficits that we're going to be with uh, for the next decade. Uh, No balance until 2030. Our debt will top half a trillion dollars. So if interest goes up, oh gosh, we're in trouble. 
One of the big winners, I Peel Region, they're going to get a new hospital in Brampton, and they're going to get a second hospital um, renovated and upgraded. They really need that. Uh, baby bonuses have been bulked up to $400 per child up to grade 12. Those who have children with special needs will get $500. There's also money available for things like child care and uh, programs. I thought I heard, and I, I could be wrong, $14 billion over the next decade to upgrade skills. There's $400 million for tourism over four years, $1 billion for vaccines, and interestingly, no funding for that very controversial highway 413. So that is now off the table. Let me bring in Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers uh, Federation. And I, I was looking at your Twitter to see if you had a reaction, and I thought, well, maybe he passed out. <laughs> yeah, I definitely had to exhale into a paper bag a few times, you know. <laughs> It is, uh, it's a staggering amount of money we're talking about, Alex. $33 billion deficit. You already mentioned half a trillion in debt within a couple of years. Um, you know, and, and, the, and the crazy thing is their path back to balance, which you know, runs possibly three elections away. That's the, that's the mm -hmm. timeline they're talking about. That's based on some pretty optimistic assumptions about interest rates and keeping spending under control and even finding some spending reductions later on. So, it is, uh, you know, we are, we are still a bit like Wiley Coyote, you know, running off the cliff here, still suspended in midair. But at some point, uh, you know, the chickens are going to come home to roost because we are spending money like crazy left, right and center. And if the government does not come out on the other end of this pandemic looking for ways to save some, uh, it's going to be very painful for everybody in Ontario. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the term is probably more akin to the chickens are coming home to roast, um, because it is really staggering. Now, obviously, we still need to have uh, measures in place to support things like small business and tourism. I, I agree with you. I mean, a, a big takeaway for me is that the budget's really contingent on not only getting vaccines into arms, but it's contingent on Ontarians getting back to work and really the private sector getting the engine going again. And with a you know, flat GDP growth problems before, I mean, they're putting a lot on uh, the private sector to kind of turn things around. For sure. And to be fair, you know, there is no way to get out of this unless you have economic growth. But the challenge the government's going to find is that may require some painful things that they don't want to talk about. One being the size of government. If they can't get, yeah. for example, government employee salaries under control, um, there's no way they're going to be able to keep a lid on spending. Um, and then the other thing is, it may, if they want to stimulate economic, economic growth, it may require some tax cuts. And that's them giving, giving up a little revenue. I mean, the benefit, of course, is you could get more revenue down the road. Uh, but we'll see if they're willing to make those decisions. Look, I, I, I rec recognize we're in a pandemic and a lot of these temporary measures, well, you can quibble around the margins, but I would just, I was hoping to see more uh, in terms of a concrete plan for what happens after the pandemic. And we didn't really see that in this budget. Yeah, I mean, with an election coming in a year, I don't, I didn't expect to see anything like that. Um, but, you know, the one thought that did come to my mind is that, you know, to service the um, interest payments on the deficit alone, I mean, we're talking $20.6 billion a year, sorry, on debt interest payments. That That is an enormous amount. And we're all uh, either assuming or relying on interest rates to stay low. Yeah, and all governments are. And that's the scary thing. And people forget interest rates are not under the control of our government. Uh, you know, the central bank is independent. They set that. They decide based on a number of factors. People, of course, you don't even need to talk about things like housing prices. Um, and those mm -hmm. are things that may lead banks to raise interest rates. And if they do, guess what? All that money that we've borrowed to pay for things during COVID, suddenly we're paying a lot more interest on that borrowed money as well.
Not to mention if the, the bubble bursts on real estate, uh, which is driving our economy, then we have nothing. I mean, because that's the only thing really fueling other than uh, money laundering. That's what's fueling fueling the economy right now. Um, but there are things, you know, in here, uh, there's a, there's more, um, you know, help and support for the tourism sector. There's more help for businesses with more grants. Uh, you know, they've been locked down. I don't think the government has a choice but to pony up. No, I agree. Look, you, you know that we're opponents of, of sort of giving money out to businesses willy-nilly, but it's a little bit different here. You know, if, you're, if you put a patient into a coma, you're kind of obligated to provide them with life support, right? And that's what I think we see, uh, you know, with the pandemic example. Right. The one thing um, Peter Bethlen Falvey did point out, and I don't know if this is just playing it up, because um, I've had a couple of um, economists come on and say a she session really isn't such a thing. He did say that this is a she session. Women have been hit uh, disproportionately in this and that they'll set up a task force to get women back uh, to work so they can compete. Um, so they're zeroing in on spending programs uh, for women. Well, look, I think that you need to target your resources at whoever is, it needs the help most. And it's, it's not really a man or woman thing. It's that if you find a particular demographic or region or people in a particular sector that need help, uh, you know, that makes sense to target the, the, the help there rather than sort of scattershot it broadly. There was um there was a big winner here Brampton they get a new hospital which they are desperate for they get another hospital that will get uh, retrofit and upgrades uh, so they get something the one issue I mean the the one way you know that this is a massive budget and lots of spending is because I think the the opposition seem to be really scrounging to find things to complain about and when they're quiet it's it means okay there's a ton of spending in here the one thing that they are still uh, you know criticizing is that there's still no sick pay at the provincial level which is uh, the big criticism for for workers. Um, how come this has become such a provincial issue? I mean, this is a federal program. Um, is it that the federal government is not rolling it out? Or is it that, that, that like, what is it not working about this program that, that seems to kind of stick in everyone's craw? Yeah, that type of program should generally be a federal responsibility. And, you know, I think it's partly just pandemic brain, Alex. Uh, you know, because we're in the middle of such an unusual time, a lot of people who should otherwise know better just sort of throw the idea of provincial jurisdiction out the window um, you've got you've got uh, politicians at all levels calling on other governments to do things that really aren't under within their power. And it's all because I think people are just frustrated and desperate. So, look, we can mm -hmm. debate uh, what the right policies are. But the reality is something like that, uh, like sick pay, really should be under federal jurisdiction. So what does this tell you then about what we're expecting with the federal budget, which we are now, in fact, getting in April? Does this give you any thought as to the direction that uh, the Trudeau government will go? Well, I suspect they have not backed down one inch from their commitment to spend $100 billion over the next three years on, guess we'll find out on April 19th. Um, I think it's also safe to say now, Alex, we're probably not going to have an election this spring. You know, the prime minister came out today and said, I don't need a new mandate. I don't know how he would back <laughs> yeah. off from that. Um, yeah. And maybe they've just done the math. They've realized that, uh, you know, they're, they're a little bit ahead in the polls, but it's not worth the risk. And the other thing too, Alex, uh, a lot of liberal MPs elected in 2015, they uh, get their six-year anniversary in October, and that means they're eligible for a taxpayer-funded yeah. pension. Yep. That, that is a very smart thing to point out. But also, you know, there was this little hiccup with uh, the EU as well as uh, India saying that they're going to put a trade, um, you know, an export um, 
hesitation on vaccines. And, and they may be putting that in their head saying, God, if we get another delay in vaccine deliveries to Canada, uh, that would really hurt them in a, in a spring election. But nonetheless, uh, you know, they could put a capital gains tax in. That's kind of the thing that's been tumbling and rumbling around. That would that would for me, that'd be like a no brainer. Bring them down because who the heck wants that? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you think right now, like you talked about how real estate, it is a bubble, it is a real problem, no one can deny that, but you're also right in that it's the one thing that's, that's going well for the economy. If you pour cold water on that, you nail people whose sole investment is their homes. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. politically that is, uh, that is not a winner. No, it would say for a lot of us, it's, uh, it's the only thing we have to retire. So don't get those guaranteed pensions like they do in the uh, public sector. All right, Aaron, I'm sure we'll get some more coming out in the next few days over this, but I appreciate the uh, first glance insight. Always a pleasure, Alex. Aaron Woodrick, who is uh, with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation on Point on Global News Radio. We are investigating this matter. It is still an ongoing investigation. Uh, we did receive information uh, from evidence found at the scene uh, that this could potentially be an arson investigation. Uh, this is why our major crimes unit uh, have uh, cordoned off the scene, secured it, and waiting for judicial authorization to re-enter that home and look for evidence to support this police investigation. As if the, the fire that ripped through that family home in Oshawa wasn't tragic enough, now we learn from uh, investigators in uh, Durham Police that it may have actually been set intentionally. And uh, as you've heard the news, four people were killed. Two of those were children, uh, siblings were told. And this was a fire that ripped through that home so fast that those inside did not have a chance to escape. Um, we're told that there were three young boys living with their parents, their grandfather, and at least two boarders uh, in, the, I guess, who were renting uh, rooms. And police have announced a cause of the blaze. That could still be weeks, if not months away. But something changed in this investigation in the last 24 hours when someone obviously went to police with information. Dave Perry joining us. He is, of course, CEO of Investigative Solutions Network, also our Global News Radio Crime and Security Analyst. Good to have you, Dave. Thanks for having me, Alex. So four people got out, eight of them uh, were living there. It's hard to imagine, you know, someone would intentionally uh, put children in harm's way. Um, what would the turning point, I mean, generally speaking, it's when the Ontario fire marshal gets called in that, that, you know, something is being looked at. But what would the turning point kind of be for this kind of investigation? Like any other investigation, um, the turning point is usually some kind of evidence that points the investigators, and of course that would involve the police, the firefighters, and the fire marshal's office. It would point them in the direction that the fire is suspicious. So that could come in many forms. But the first task, of course, after uh, tragically doing the body recoveries and so on, is to look at the cause and origin of the fire. And that's, you know, the specialty in terms of what the firefighters do and what the fire marshal's office do. Yeah, and and it, uh, given that four people didn't get a chance to get out of that house tells you how fast that fire was moving, but the fact is it was a row of townhomes. That thing could have moved through all of those townhomes very quickly and taken out a lot more people, and if not done a whole lot more destruction. Absolutely, and so that's a red flag right away when you have people today you would expect that, you know, modern smoke alarms would have activated and therefore alert the family and give them an opportunity to escape. So, you know, that's one of the first things they have to look at. Were there smoke alarms? And if so, were they activated? Were they working properly? And if not, why not? 
And if they did go uh, go off and if they were going off when the firefighters arrived, why didn't that give the family an opportunity? And, you know, sometimes arson pops into your mind first and foremost. You start thinking that there was something that led that fire to take off in a, in a you know very aggressive way in such a way that it didn't allow everybody in the house to escape. So it's a it's a full on investigation. If it is an arson, of course, it's now a homicide investigation. And uh, mm-hmm. over the days, they will go in and look for some of the obvious things. They look at, you know, was it an accident? If not, you know, what caused the fire? Was it an incendiary device? Was it a mechanical failure? Was it an electronic failure? Did something arc and spark and cause the fire? So th- those are all questions that forensically they'll be pouring through that that scene. And that's what they do at all scenes to see what the cause and origin of the fire was. Um, you know, it's just like sometimes we find a body and the body, you know, perhaps the condition of the body would signal that perhaps there's something suspicious about it. So you have to do the, the standard investigation, which includes interviewing the family members, the ones who escaped, to find out what they heard, what they saw, interviewing the first uh, responders who got on scene. You know, what was the fire like? Uh, what color was the smoke? Were there any smells? You know, for example, was there the smell of an accelerant or gasoline present when they arrived? Mm-hmm. And then after the fire is put out, that crime scene will tell the investigators an awful lot. They can follow the burn patterns, and quite often those burn yeah. patterns will tell a significant story. So it's a, it's a very yeah, and just, case, and it's, it's one that will take some time. Yeah, it will, because as I understand, most of the house collapsed in on itself, and so a lot of um, evidence would be would be taken out, but certainly um, forensics is, is a pretty incredible thing, and the science behind it, um, it tells its own story and will be told. And, you know, the fire marshal generally gets called in when there is a death associated with fire, and, and they can often zero in quite quickly, but it sounds in this case like someone came forward with some kind of information. Exactly. And, and as in any investigation, interviewing people within the family, close to the family, uh, hopefully finding some details that might give, for example, a motive for somebody wanting to do that, to mm-hmm. wanting, wanting to set that house on fire. And who knows, you know, you don't know at this point whether homicide was an intention or a result of the act of arson, but all of those uh, questions have to be answered. And uh, it's, a, it's a fulsome investigation involving the three teams that I had mentioned earlier. You can join us, of course, Monday through Friday, 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.